We're in the fifth message of a series entitled Sensible Faith. We'll finish next Sunday. And this morning we're on the sense of taste. Now the sense of taste, I thought when I started approaching this, I thought it would be pretty easy. As it, as it turned out, quite a bit of effort was spent trying to even define what is taste. Because it really, it really is a lot more than simply your taste buds identifying a taste. We say someone has expensive tastes. What does that mean? That certainly means something more than that. And so, and so I started to realize um, that taste is really a very complex idea. And uh, I, I just want to share with you some of the ways it's complex. First of all, your sense of smell is innately tied to your sense of taste. So if you have a cold, all your food tastes bland because of your sense of smell. But it goes beyond that. Uh, your sense of texture has a lot to do with your sense of taste. If it doesn't feel right... You don't like it. I mean, I, I think there are some of you who are like me. I don't eat oysters because they're slimy. That's why I don't eat oysters. I, I've, I've tried them. I don't like them. I couldn't even tell you what they taste like. I don't like them. They don't taste good because they're slimy. So texture has a lot to do with it. Also, presentation has a lot to do with taste. For some of us, it just needs to look just right. It needs to be presented and in just the right way, I, I think for myself, caviar, caviar doesn't taste good for me because it looks like what I know it is. <laughs> and that's nasty. I don't care how rich you are, that's nasty. Caviar is just gross. And so that's, it just looks wrong. It, it, there's no way to present the egg of a fish that attracts me to it. So you have to be thoughtful about presentation. Also, expectation affects your taste. Have you ever been sitting at a lunch with somebody and you're, you reach to grab your Coke or whatever it is you're drinking, but you grab the wrong thing? And you, when you take it, it surprises you? Like, oh, I thought that was my iced tea, or oh, I thought that was my Coke. Well, almost always, when that, that surprise is almost always a negative surprise. Even if it's something you like to drink. That just a jolt of a surprise of the unexpected affects the way we taste. And so you see how complex it is, and, and, and this is the biggest one coming up. But it's already complex, but the biggest one to me, the queen mother thing that shapes taste is what you're hungry for. If you're not hungry for it, it doesn't taste good. There's times I'm going out to lunch with somebody, which is frequently, in case you like to go out to lunch with somebody, give me a call. But I'm going out to lunch, and I'll say, well, where do you want to eat? And they'll go, I don't know, what do you want to do? We do the I don't know this for a while. And uh, finally, I say, well, how about Chinese? And the person might say to me, oh, ah, I just did Chinese yesterday. <sighs> Let's do Mexican. Well, what, is it, what is that person saying? That person's saying, Chinese would not taste good today, not because he hates it, but because he loves it, and he was there yesterday. Do you see that, how our appetites shape our taste? If we don't have an appetite for something, we don't want it. It won't even taste good. If you're, when you go into the grocery store hungry, everything looks good. Right? If you're stuffed, if you stuff yourself on cookie dough, there's not, you know, there's, which is something I frequently do as well, you can get to the place where nothing looks good. You just get sick to your stomach and you just have no taste for anything. And our tastes, our tastes, the appetite, this kind of thing, it's so complex it develops and it changes and it matures over the years. So as a child, your tastes or your appetites are very rudimentary. 
junk food in every way, shape, and form you can get it. The French fry is a sufficient food to power a child in every situation. They'll do anything for a French fry. I was thinking the other day, we, we cook that in biofuel. Isn't that weird? You can power your car with what you cook a fry in. See, it's the only ingredient, potato and gas. It's foul. But a kid, a kid, a kid and his father will have this appetite for a fry that it's this delicacy. But somehow water is poison. Now, water is like the most neutral element on the planet, which you actually need to survive. Most of your body is water. So when you drink water, it's like the majority of your body. And yet for a child, it's like he's drinking poison. But he'll eat something fried in gasoline. I thought it would be neat if we exchanged fries for green beans because they're almost the same dimension as, you know, wouldn't it be just a great joke on a kid to go and supersize a big bucket of green beans? Oh, I would get them. But do you see how taste is really appetite, how, how what we want is, it really shapes the way something tastes? And what, when we're going to talk today in Scripture about just kind of getting into understanding appetite, we're going to be working on trying to alter what it is we want. Because if we can't alter what we want, it doesn't matter if somebody says it's good. If you don't want it, you don't want it. So how do we do that? And we need to understand, especially with things spiritual, that it all begins in the heart. There's no way to explain to somebody the attributes of an idea and expect that that's sufficient. They need to gain an appetite for it. And that's, that's kind of what we're wrestling with today. So you, you should be in Exodus 16. We're going to look at three different passages today. Three different vignettes, I guess I would say. From Scripture, Exodus, Numbers, and John. But let's, uh, let's begin here. Exodus 16, verses 1 to 3. Now the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, I'll give a little background here. In case you're wondering where they are or if you're not too familiar with the stories of Scripture. If, if you're not familiar, by the way, with the stories of Scripture, Exodus is a great place to be reading. Exodus 1 to 20. You really should read that. But in this account, the Hebrew people have just come out of Egypt. So Moses, by the power of the Lord, Moses has led the people out of Egypt. They've just crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh and the army pursuing them to the Red Sea have gone into the Red Sea. The waters collapsed over them. And they've perished, and the Israelites are now on the eastern side of the Red Sea. And they're in the desert. And they're 45 days into this adventure. In fact, the, Israel, the Jewish calendar begins at, at the exodus of Egypt. That shall be the first day of the first year of the Hebrew calendar. So today we're in the 15th day of the second month, 45 days into this journey. And they begin to grumble against Moses and Aaron that they are without food, that they're starving to death, that they're frustrated, 
and they're starving to death. Now, it's been 45 days, so, so I guess they're allowed to be hungry. But it should be, it, it's interesting to look at their tone, what the scriptures tell us about the tone of their language. They say a couple of things that will really teach us something. The first is that their complaint seems to be man-centered. Did you notice who they complained to? Moses and Aaron. They don't seem to acknowledge who has brought them out of Egypt. In fact, the only time they mention God is they say this, it would have been better if we were back in Egypt and we had died by the Lord's hand. So in their mind is this idea like somehow God sprung them out of Egypt and and pushed them over the Red Sea and then kind of said, all right, you and Moses and Aaron will take care of you guys. And they're kind of off. They haven't turned to the Lord. They haven't cried out to God. They've cried out against Moses and Aaron, saying, you've done this to us. So that's the first thing, is that they're man-centered on this. And and, and in truth, any time we are man-centered on on issues of life, trusting that someone else will provide for us, trusting that someone else will take care of us, we we are bound to become disappointed. The moment, the moment something is scary, the moment uh, that we, we find ourselves without provision, we're going to turn on them. We will certainly turn on them in our hearts if we're trusting in them and they can't produce, which is exactly the occasion here. Is that the Israelites are trusting in Moses and Moses can't produce. So that's the first thing. Is Their, their attitude is man-centered. Here's the second thing. In their hardship, they begin to reminisce about Egypt as a place where at least their needs were met. They begin to reminisce. They were slaves, but at least they ate, is kind of in their mind. We would have been better if we were home. We were in prison, but at least life was predictable. At least we had prison food, is kind of the attitude that they kind of had. And, and these two attitudes, this man-centered attitude and this situation-centered attitude that, it, that we, we're relying on you to produce for us, and another one saying, in that other setting, we had control. Back in Egypt, we had control. Certain things we had no control over. But on the issues of food and life, we had some say. That has shaped the attitude of these Israelites. And I have to say, I think, I think God did this on purpose. Certainly God sees that they're hungry. God brought them across the Red Sea into the desert where there's no food. So certainly God knows that they're going to be hungry. God knew exactly how much they brought out of Egypt with them. God knew exactly where to bring them. God is leading them into the desert. He leads them into the desert. They're starving. This isn't six days later. This is 45 days later. They're hungry. I I have to say, I think scripturally God is starving them. I mean, what's the expectation? Would you really, ex- if God had brought us out of any land, would not the expectation be that God would provide for us? I think, that would, I think that's a righteous expectation. If we're going to follow the Lord across a Red Sea and follow a pillar of fire by day and a, or a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the expectation is, is that the Lord would provide for us. So for 45 days, God has given them nothing. You'd think if, if God would, wanted to provide for them, they'd come out of the Red Sea and there'd be boxes of manna with like tribal names on them. Go to your tribe, sign in, get your box of manna. That's what you would expect 
from a God who's just about provision. So why has he waited 45 days? I think he's waited to allow all of this to bubble to the surface. The grumbling. The grumbling which never, we never see our own grumbling as long as we're satisfied, right? As long as we have a meal to eat. We don't know how selfish we are. We don't know how man-centered we are. We don't know how situationally faithful we are as long as we have something to eat or something here or something there. God's pulled away these things. He's pulled away these things. And for 45 days, it's been grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. And now it's foamed over. And the people themselves, they now the people can see it themselves, right? It's out here in the open and they can see that, that they're trusting in Aaron and, and they would prefer provision in slavery than freedom. And that in none of this they see God. That's what God's waiting for. God wants all of this to bubble to the surface so that they know who they are and then God begin, can begin to work. And this is what he does. Read verses 4 and 5 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day. Now listen, listen very closely. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. By the way, this is the first example of the Sabbath. Remember, the Ten Commandments are a few chapters from now. So God's establishing a Sabbath idea right now among them. But you notice they they cry out against Aaron and Moses. Moses turns to the Lord and the Lord goes, well, if he had just asked, I'd have given you food. Nobody asked me. Here's your food. But he gives this test. There's this test here. And can, can you see what the test is? It's not really enumerated. He just says, this way I'll test and I'll know. What is he testing and knowing? There's one, it's, it's kind of a restriction. It's this word enough. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for what? That day. Do you see what the Lord's going to do? The Lord says, I just want you to take one day's worth of food. I'm going to bring you to a place of starving. And then when you, tomorrow you're going to wake up and there's going to be food all over the place. But I just want you to take a day's worth of food. Now, what's the tendency of the people going to be? We're, we're starving, and there's food. We're going to get as much food as we can. We're going to hoard it so that we can go, you know, we don't know when the next time God's going to show up. So we'll hoard it. And, and, and the Lord says, no, 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 just take one day of food. Just one day of food. You eat that food, and tomorrow, when you wake up the next day, there'll be some food. And then when you wake up the next day, there'll be some food. And then the next day, there'll be some food. And Friday, when you wake up, there's going to be a lot of food. And on that day, you can take two days' worth of food because I don't want you gathering anything on Saturday. I don't want you gathering anything on Sunday. Or the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, take the Sabbath off. Don't gather food. Now, when this happened, and the rest of the chapter is about this, what happens is they wake up. Actually, he starts off with quail. It gives them meat to eat so they can celebrate and then the manna starts coming. And what would happen is most people would take what they were supposed to, but some people would say, I don't know about this God. So they hoarded it. And if they hoarded it, it got moldy and maggots infested it, and it smelled, and it like corrupted their house. It's the Lord's way of saying, I told you, just take a day. I'll be here tomorrow. I'll be back. 
And that same food that would rot overnight if it was kept, on the Sabbath, it held for two days without any problem. In fact, the scriptures kind of bring that out as an oddity. It says, by the way, the same food couldn't go 24 hours, but when it got to the Sabbath, it did just fine. Do you see what God's trying to do here? This is our first point this morning, that following God requires a dependence on him for provision. We have to be dependent upon him for provision. Whatever our diet is, whatever our appetites are for the Lord, it has to be this appetite of provision. That when we're hungry, when we desire food, that when we desire things in life, when we have dreams and hopes, we have to orient ourselves not to man, not to our situation, not to our setting, not to our gifts, but to the Lord so that he might provide. That's his whole purpose here. His purpose here is not to make a delicious food called manna that's going to revolutionize the world. His purpose here is not to create a feasting community. His purpose here is to give the people trust in their God. That's the whole purpose. The whole purpose of manna is to make people who will trust their God. Every time it comes up in Scripture, that's why it's coming up. Trust. There's going to be times in our lives when we're brought to these places when we're starving in some way or another. When everything else has failed, and this is the time when the Lord's going to say, I brought you here so that you have nothing else. I've been waiting. I've been starving you so that now I'm the only thing you can look to. Do you trust him? Not man-centered, not situation-centered. It needs to be centered on trust. Now, I want to offer a little bit of background here. The people, when they come out of Egypt, we shouldn't be so uh, tempted to think that they don't have animals with them. They certainly left Egypt with animals. They certainly have animals with them as they're traveling through the desert. In fact, they certainly have animals right now as they're complaining about starving. The thought is, is they have their herds. Well, they don't want to kill into all their herds and have nothing left. That's their sustainable, that's their livelihood. They're shepherding kind of people. So the thought is not that they've ran through every single last animal. That's not it at all. In fact, in Leviticus, when you read Leviticus, how do you bring a burnt offering to the Lord? You bring an animal. Well, how could they bring... I mean, Leviticus hasn't even happened yet. If they had burned through all their animals, a burnt offering would be bring manna. Wouldn't it? If that's all they had, bring manna. In fact, you can find nowhere in the Torah any opportunity to bring manna as sacrifice. You can't bring manna as a thank offering. You can't, manna can't land in your lap and you can't bring it to the tabernacle. You have to bring some kind of animal or crop that you had to labor to raise to bring to the tabernacle. And so there are animals with the Hebrew people right now. There are rules in the law about clean and unclean animals because they'd be walking through the desert and a deer would run by and they'd shoot the deer and they'd need to know. Are we allowed to eat this? Right? When they go through some of the other lands and the people groups, you have conversations like, we'll promise we'll pay you for the food. So they're eating, they're eating in multiple ways. Manna is that constant reminder that there's no way you can starve if you're one of God's people. That's the idea. But this, this comes to my mind. I think as the church... 
I think we're, we're certainly among these people that are wandering in the land with God, right? We're beneath Him, and we observe as Christians, you observe the man of falling, particularly in someone else's life or in your own. When someone's fallen on hard times, and then they turn to the Lord, and then through their testimony or their witness to you, they say, you know, I'm closer to the Lord than I've ever been in my life. If it weren't for the Lord, I wouldn't have been here. Kind of in your own mind, you're like, whew, wow, the Lord is good. Manna from heaven. He's really met that person. And then we see it in someone else's life. And we see it in someone else's life. And occasionally we see it in our own life. But I think we make an occupation of avoiding that experience by raising up as many herds as we can. That there's this feeling of going, I I know there's manna, but I don't ever want to eat it. I'd much rather have a cattle on a thousand hills I'd much rather have enough around me that I never ever get to the point where I have to rely on the Lord. I know he's there. I have faith that God's there, but I don't want to get to the place where I have to rely on that faith. And I think even in the church, we can raise these herds around us. We can be people with herds all over the place because God forbid we eat the food he gives us. Because enough isn't enough. Or just enough is nervous. Or just enough isn't satisfying. I think sometimes we eat the food that God gave us to offer as thanks to him. God says, bring me the oxen and eat the manna. And I think, I just wonder how much do we concentrate on raising up this insurance policy around us of wealth or food or, or, or whatever it is. We can be just as man-centered and just as situationally focused in our faith within the body of Christ as we can out. Just acknowledging that manna exists doesn't get us saved. And here's another reason. I think we like the taste of meat. In a spiritual way, I don't think, I think the taste of absolutely relying on God is one that we eat when we have to, but it's hard, and we just assume not eat it. The kind of food that comes easy just tastes so much better. And that brings us to this, this next one. Turn with me to Numbers 11. Now, Exodus 16 was 45 days out of Egypt. Numbers 11 is about, plus or minus a few days, about two years and 45 days out of Egypt. So it's almost two years to the day later. In Exodus 16, they're a chapter and a half away from Mount Sinai. In Numbers 11, they're a chapter and a half away from Mount Sinai on the other direction. So Exodus, they're on the way to the mountain to receive the law, to receive all the, all the whole Torah and all that's meant there, to build the tabernacle, to build the artifacts. They live there for about two years. Numbers 11 and Numbers 10, I think, is when they leave. In Numbers 11, they have just left Mount Sinai behind him, and that's where we enter the story. So just to give you a feel of, of where we are in the account. Now I'm going to read a few connected passages here, so bear with me. It's Numbers 11, which is on page 101 in your Bible, I think. I'm going to pick up in verses 4 through 6. By the way, listen to what the Lord calls these people. The rabble with them, begin to crave other food. 
And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Well, a lot happens. But if you'll skip with me to 18 through 20, it, the kind of the issue comes back to itself here. Now this is Moses. Moses consulted the Lord, and, and he was upset, obviously. And Moses consulted the Lord. The Lord's met with Moses. But this is what Moses is telling the people on behalf of God. Verse 18. Tell the people, Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils. And you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? And look in verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. They, then they spread them out around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibroth Chatavah because there, <clears throat> there they buried the people who craved other food. The name Kibroth Havatafah, if you have that little note there, means a grave of cravings. The second lesson this morning is this one, is that God, following God requires a drastic change in our appetite. Following God requires a drastic change in our appetite. We have to put some things to, to death. We have to put some cravings to death to develop new ones. You have to let certain things in your life go. There's some things that, that, that feed your appetite, the appetites of your stomach. I don't just mean diet. All the desires that come from the most animal part of you. The Lord says, we have to let that go. We have to cut that out. And in doing that, he brings these people into this, into this time in the wilderness where he gives them manna. He simplifies The time in the wilderness is like detox. That's what it is. It's like detox. He's flushing them out from these old ways. Someone once said to me, it, it, God took one day to take the Israelites out of Egypt, and it took 40 years to take Egypt out of the Israelites. That's what he's doing. He's flushing Egypt out of the Israelites day after day. Soon enough, the, the, the memory of the things in Egypt are slowly fading away, fading away, fading away. And this is one of those last-ditch efforts of the, of the Israelites to rise up going, we want the food that we had at home. We remember how it tasted. It tasted so good. We just want the food, this junk food of life that was on the western coast of the Red Sea. All that kind of food. There's some of us, I've been one of them, I'm certainly one of them, 
who we travel with the Lord in the desert, but at night sometimes we get on our camel, we slip out of the camp, and we ride off and we just sit on the eastern bank of the Red Sea and we breathe in the smoke. Like our last life. You remember? Some of you who just you want to get a little close. You're part of the people of God, but there's, you still long for that day when the hungers of your stomach were met. God needs to flush this out of our lives. And it's funny, for, the, for those of us, and I think it's all of us in some way, but it's some of us in a lot of ways. For those of us who have this longing, this kind of stomach that's calling itself back to Egypt, do you, re, do you really remember what it was like? Do you really remember what it was like before Christ entered your life? What The kind of stronghold that that sin had on you? I mean, we sit back and we think, oh, how harmful can it be? Do you really remember? Do you remember what it was that drove you to Jesus in the first place? This is the way of Pharaoh. You want to know the way of Pharaoh? You go back to Egypt, and he's going to cram all that junk food down your throat. He's going to stuff you with it. You're going to be gorged with it. And when you've, when you've had so much of it, because you've, you've been drawn out, right? You're in detox, Christian detox, and you haven't had it, and he's going to go stuff you with it, and then right when you're good for nothing, he's going to haul you out in the daylight and say, get to work carving my statue. That's idolatry. It's going back to Pharaoh to be fed, so that then he puts you back in the mud fields to be carving and constructing his temples and his statues and all of his works, and all that's done because we're attracted to his food. Some of us say, I was a slave, but I ate well. Some of us say, I was in prison, but they fed me. It was prison food. It wasn't good food. But here's the deal. It looks good. It looks like good food when the option is manna. If that's all you got to choose from, it looks like good food. And this is, this is the rub for the church. This is, to me, the lesson for the church. That when we say to the world, don't eat, don't touch, don't taste, don't partake, and yet we sit over here with a plate of manna, right? There's this big party. You know, the best way I can think of it is in a collegiate sense. Because college is the place where appetites are nurtured, Right? Either you're in there and you know it, or you were there and we know it, or you're on your way there and you're thinking about it. College is that place of, of, of rebirth of freedom. I look so forward to my freedom. And then I went to a service academy. But college is that place. And you get there, and, and everywhere you go, I think that there's ironic, I think it's a cool idea, but it is ironic that you can get a meal plan and eat anywhere you want at college. It just says it all. Whatever you want, we'll give you. And there's this whole attitude of they got it moving on and everything's going on in college. And they look over the church and, you know, we're in our white clothes and we have our white plate and there's white walls. And there's like Dan Fogelberg in the background. And, you know, we're bouncing off beat. And we're like, you want a wafer of manna? I mean, all we have to offer is manna. The church... When the church is about what we don't do, we don't do that. No, we, oh, we don't do that. Either. No, we don't do that. 
No, we did, we did that once, but not anymore. Haven't done that in years. What do we do? We sit here with this white plate of manna, trying to sell that to the world. I would not want that. There's no way I would be a Christian if manna was on the menu. And that was it. What is attractive about that? What's attractive about a life devoid of all of that and nothing to suffice but manna? We have to realize this time in the desert is not the future of the Israelites. It's detox. Look, 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 at, look at Numbers. Numbers 11 is where we are. Look at the title of Numbers 13. They are a chapter and a half away from sending spies into the promised land when they do this. You think about that? That's where they're going. This is what God has in store for them. The promised land is defined as the land of milk and honey. The spies come in and they come out and they're holding grapes like basketballs. And they're talking about, oh, you should have seen the food. It was this cornucopia, this paradise. Giants. But awesome stuff everywhere. But Giants. But there's all this great food to feed giants. But, that's, but there was this massive, this beautiful land. God had this land of all of this food to feed an appetite. And here they are in this time of manna. And this is what they think their whole identity is. And I'm here to say, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not preach when you say, stop doing that, eat manna. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, look, that is not the way. Over here is the way. We find everything, everything that's fallen in life, all that's fallen in life, Christ has a version of it in the promised land. Everything that is, is good. There's nothing that's over here that's decrepit and vile unless God made some good version of it. Satan has never invented anything. He's only defiled everything. So we find this idea, if it's sex, it's the, the collegiate attitude of sex, when you want, how you want, who you want, whatever you want, all the time as an appetite, I feed like an animal here. You take that and you don't say, sex is terrible. We in Church of Manna never have sex. We're white with a plate. We don't say that. We say, no, no, no. We say, look, there is this great purpose And it's over here. And there is this place where sex isn't just a momentary high. It is a preserving, intimate, relationship-building idea between one man and one woman. It has to be good here. We come over here and we we talk about community. right? And it's drinking and exposing and engaging and being foul and this kind of, that kind. And we, we can't come over and say, no, we don't do this. What we have to say is, is there is this version of community that is so much better. How many of you have heard or have said yourself, I didn't know you could have fun without alcohol? I've heard that so many times. We, what that is, is that is redeeming and the idea of community. The church needs to do that. We need to take these things that have fallen apart, and we need to say, God will take you here. It may have to pass through a time where you lose appetite for it. God may have to take Egypt out of you, but he's taking Egypt out of you so he can put the promised land in you, and you can receive it in the right way. Because if you could just go from one to the other, you will abuse it. You'll make that look like that. God has to change you to receive his gift. Parents, if you raise your children on a diet of manna, honey, we don't do that. 
Oh, no, no, we never do that. Don't do that, honey. We don't say that. We don't think that. No, we don't do that either. None of that. Don't watch that. Can't do that. Never been there. Wouldn't go there. Don't talk to them. If that's how you raise your children, they will get curious about Egypt. Because it's more colorful. Why would they not want to go to Egypt? They'd be crazy to not want to go to Egypt. What are you giving them? You're giving them a void. Versus raising them to say, you see that? Let me tell you what God really tried to do. You see that? Let's talk about what God wants to do. Instead of just creating this pit of manna, you say, look, no, yes. No, yes. We ought to be able to respond to these things. We ought to be able to talk to our children about sex. There are so many kids in our nursery. I know we're having it. We ought to be willing to talk about it. There is a godly way that we communicate these things. These are godly ideas. God made it. Satan didn't make it. Satan has defiled it. Everything that is that isn't shouldn't be, God made a version of it that should be. Go find it, redeem it, and preach it. Because it's life-giving. They will be better off to receive true community, better off to receive true relationship, true language, true ways to speak to one another and to be with one another. They will benefit and they will meet Christ in it. We cannot preach manna. Manna was there not to be eaten as a meal, but to give us dependence on God. We need to have this new kind of appetite. Not this stomach appetite, this kind of craving of the soul, which desires what God has in store for us on the other side of the hill. Turn with me, our last one, John 6. I think it's page 741. Now, we're going to be picking up, we're just going to read a few verses here, verses 25 to 33. John 6 is, however, the same chapter where the 5,000 are fed with the bread and the fishes. Jesus has just done that the day before because he was getting crowded because he was now so popular, he kind of retreated to the other side of a lake on his own. He went to the other side of this lake. The very next morning, all the people who were fed and were now were into Jesus, they were now in the Jesus fan club, they come over and they find him on the other side of the lake. And this is where we pick up, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now listen to his answer. I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is the Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life 
to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. You know what happens? They leave him. Everybody leaves him. Why is that? Here they are. They just saw this miraculous sign. They had this massive meal that nobody can explain. They're drawn to Jesus. They're here to Jesus. They say, what must I do to have this? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And they leave Jesus. What is it about their appetite? Jesus says it right up front. They show up and they say, they say, Rabbi, how did you get here so fast? And he doesn't answer that question at all. He cuts right to the chase. He says, I tell you the truth. You're not here because you saw some miraculous sign. In other words, you're not coming to me because you have some deep spiritual question about salvation. You don't have some question as to what, how, what the significance of my miraculous act the day before has conjured in your soul. You're not here to worship me as Lord. You're not here to ask me certain kinds of questions about what kind of power I am or my relationship with the Father. He says, you're here because yesterday you ate and now you're hungry. He says, you're here because your stomach has brought you here. You just want more. And you can see it. He says, look, if, if you knew, I would have food that the Father, the Father could give you and you'd never hunger again. They go, well, give us this food. And he says, I would. And they said, well, then do it. Show us a sign. I dare you. What you? Moses, man in the desert, 40 years, what are you going to do? Do you see their attitude? Their attitude is, what can you give me? How can you feed me? Show me some way. All of their appetite is from their, is from their stomach. And I don't simply mean from hunger. I mean just the morality that comes out of the stomach. The eros coming out of them. This desire to have more, to consume, to this just to kind of the appetite of, of consuming that they want. And, the, and Jesus is saying, you will never get anything from me unless you come to me with a soul craving. You have to desire me, and that will sustain you. He says he is the bread of life. This morning, I'm before me is the Lord's table here for the Lord's Supper. Normally we say things like the communion of the Lord's Supper is those people who are confessing believers, those people who have committed to follow after Christ, those people who desire to be in covenant with Him. This morning I'd say the Lord's Supper's table is for those people who have an appetite for Jesus. I, not for what you want to get, not for, not for what you think Jesus can get you. This table here is for those people who crave after Christ. That's the requirement. Do you have this craving for Jesus? When you read the scriptures, it says, I hunger and thirst for you. I consume your word. I long for you. When you read the psalmist say these kinds of things, when you hear the Lord say, the shepherd prepares the table before us, do you have an appetite for Christ? We have been called out of Egypt, and the Lord is trying to give us a new appetite, not just manna. He's trying to give us Jesus Christ. How do you approach the table this morning?